For thousands of years, civilization has been a destructive force, both ecologically and culturally. Deep in the abyss of the sixth extinction, the future of humanity and our other-than-human kin hangs by a thread. At this pivotal moment in time, we must reach back into the depths of the human story and uncover our mistakes. I invite you to go with me down the rabbit hole as I seek out the silenced, forgotten, buried, abandoned, and demonized stories and practices of regenerative, egalitarian, place-based cultures. There is still time to reconnect with what we have lost, to restore our broken relationships to the land where we dwell, and to remember the human place in the wild. Hello, and welcome to the Rewilding Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Michael Bauer. I'm coming to you from Portland, Oregon the traditional territory of the Multnomah and Clackamas Chinookan people, as well as the Kalapuya, Malala, Cowlitz, and many other tribal groups who have lived here, subsisted here, and traveled here to trade and make their living since time immemorial. This podcast is produced in partnership with Rewild Portland, a nonprofit organization, and is made possible through financial support from our listeners. The best way to keep the podcast going is to become a recurring monthly supporter, if you feel inspired to contribute, you can make a donation by following the link in the podcast notes. You can also help by sharing our podcast on social media and writing us a review on iTunes. Today, my guest is Dr. Leonard Martin. I was informed of his work by my friend Jessica Carew-Craft at Echoes in Time last summer after she listened to my lecture on prehistory around the philosopher's fire. During my lecture, I brought up the distinction between what anthropologists have labeled immediate return hunter-gatherers and delayed return hunter-gatherers. This distinction is something most cultural anthropologists have only a passing understanding of, but what most people, especially the general public, have no concept of whatsoever. I often tell people that this simple distinction is essentially the single most important aspect of understanding history and of understanding human nature— it is fundamental to understanding what rewilding means and how to go about rewilding. At the end of my Rewilding 101 class, I tell people if they only walk away with one thing from my class, it's understanding the difference between immediate return and delayed return societies. This is also a central part of Dr. Martin's work, and therefore it's necessary I explain the concept, at least in brief, to my listeners before we jump into the interview. While Dr. Martin gives his own definition of the terms, I wanted to set up my own in order to frame the conversation. Let's start with the term hunter-gatherer. This term describes a way of life through the subsistence methods in the name itself, essentially meaning people who make their living through hunting and gathering. While it may seem simple, there's quite a bit of complexity and diversity within the framework of hunting and gathering. As anthropologists have studied hunter-gatherers, they have noticed a marked difference within that category. In the 1970s, anthropologist James Woodburn labeled these two major categories as immediate return and delayed return. Oftentimes, people conflate immediate return and delayed return under the same category of hunter-gatherer, as well as horticultural and semi-agricultural societies being lumped under that term as well. This occurs accidentally, ignorantly, or intentionally when it twists the data in favor of a particular thesis— in the latter, I'm thinking specifically of the pop-cultural propagandists who masquerade as anthropologists like Steven Pinker, Jared Diamond, Stephen LeBlanc, and the like. 
I also often see hunter-gatherers labeled as foragers or foraging societies, which I think can also add to this confusion. Our ape relatives are known as foragers. In anthropological terms, foraging means eating on the go. You pick a part of a plant or scavenge part of an animal and you eat it right there on the spot. Gathering, by contrast, is a little bit different than that. Gathering implies picking and bringing food back to a base camp. Immediate return means that the animal immediately consumes the food they have foraged, scavenged, gathered, or hunted. You have an immediate return on your food acquisition efforts and actions. Food in immediate return hunter-gatherers is consumed on the same day or within a few days of its acquisition. There is no food storage or long-term food preservation in immediate return societies. Delayed return societies, on the other hand, receive a return on their efforts for food acquisition that is delayed. Generally, what this means is that you have to wait to reap the benefits of your labor. This comes down to food storage and food preservation, and more specifically down the line, growing food. The reason this distinction is so important is that this simple act completely changes the behavior of individuals in these societies, but also how larger groups interact. By storing food, you immediately become less nomadic in an effort to defend against theft from others. With the introduction of food storage in societies, we immediately see an increase in violence in the archaeological record. This is also reflected in contemporary societies that anthropologists labeled immediate return and delayed return societies. There is noticeably more violence in delayed return societies. Often when you see people arguing over whether or not hunter-gatherers are more egalitarian, it has to do with the confusion or lack of understanding around this particular characteristic of how a society is labeled. It's uncertain when exactly in our past that some human societies became delayed return societies, but it was probably around 50,000 years ago during what is called the Upper Paleolithic. Agricultural societies, which are said to have started around 10,000 years ago, are essentially the epitome of delayed return societies, and this recent transformation has led to all kinds of changes in our culture and the environment, in large part leading to the sixth mass extinction. But what other effects has this transition had on us? If we suppose that we are biologically more adapted to immediate return societies but are living in delayed return societies, what can this tell us about our perception? How has this affected our physical and mental health? Enter Dr. Leonard Martin, retired professor of the Behavioral and Brain Sciences program at Georgia University. Dr. Martin has written several essays on how this transition may have affected our mental health and thoughts. With his ID compensation theory, he has put forward the idea that our societies have had to create cultural practices and elements in order to compensate psychologically from the transition from immediate return to delayed return. One of his essays struck me in particular. In ID Compensation Theory and Meaning in Life, he supposes that the search for meaning in life is a direct result of living in a delayed return society, and that prior to this transition, humans didn't spend much time, or any time at all, stressing out about the meaning of life. As someone who feels constantly burdened by this quest, I was really excited to interview him on this topic. When I approached him to talk with me, he was equally excited to talk with someone who had done this reading and was coming at it from a whole other angle. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Oh, it's fun. It's fun stuff to talk about. And it's uh, interesting that to see that you are coming to some of the same places I am 
from a completely different perspective. Totally. Uh, that I'm going to take that as a good sign. <laughs> that maybe we're on to something here. Yes, absolutely. Uh, sounds like you got a lot going on there in Portland. Yeah, it's quite a bit. Yeah. We're, that was a couple of years ago, and we kind of, you know, every we wax and wane in, in right. what we're doing and stuff like that. But yeah, there's there's quite a bit going on. Do you now? I'm interviewing you. <laughs> Ask yeah. one other question. Do you see this as a movement, or is it just some people, or what, how would you describe what's happening? Yeah, at, at I mean, I, to me, are. rewilding is a movement uh, for sure. And you know, there's all sorts of different related aspects to it. You've got, um, you know, just understanding prehistory, understanding. Uh, that humans lived here sustainably for 3 million yes. years, you know, yeah. and then all of the different factors that have contributed to the change that we've seen in the last 10,000 years, you know, um, kind of trying to, for me, it's about piecing together that stuff um, and figuring out how to go forward or, or, or just, you know, forget about backward forward, just exist, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, not on some sort of progress linear uh, perception, but right rather to just look at well, what was happening and be like, okay, well, how can we live in a way that works now? Yes. Um, the other way is just to wait until it all falls apart. <laughs> well, right. So that's another, <laughs> I, I mean, that. for me, you know, that was, that was definitely like the inspiration was like, oh no, you know, I read Ishmael when I was 16 and was like, oh God, like civilization is going to collapse in my lifetime. I've got to learn to like survive or whatever, you know, um, yes. I've come a long way since then. It's been over 20 years, but uh, you know, just in terms of researching that, that's like one of the huge elements that um that kind of creates the movement of rewilding is just the idea of like you know returning to that way of life again now like with you know returning also sort of looks at things as like this linear model when that's not necessarily yes. even yeah. possible well when i think returning i think you might agree with that it, in some sense it's returning here exactly not so much time it's returning to who we are not who we were absolutely uh, and yeah. i think people tend to lose that in the culture in there. I use I use the word stories. We get these mm -hmm. stories in our head, and we think those stories are real. Exactly. And it's like, no, get out of that. Yeah. See what's left. Totally. Uh, yeah. Okay. So one of the biggest components for me in terms of understanding our story or creating a new narrative to live by is this idea of immediate return and delayed return, because you hear people yes. kind of throw the term hunter gatherer around. And it doesn't necessarily always correlate to the things that I've researched or read about, you know, like, well, hunter gatherers are in, innately egalitarian or something like that. And then you read about hunter gatherers that are not, you know? Yes, um, yes. And so there's like these, uh, you know, distinctions that need to be made in order to clarify. And so I'm hoping that you can help me do that. So maybe you uh, could I just tell that's... me, you know, you could define what a hunter gatherer is. Yeah, I think. One of the things I see is exactly what you actually I'll mention two problems that seem to come up when I talk about this. One is when you look at people thinking they know what hunter gatherers are. And for one thing, everybody thinks they know where they get that information. I don't know. But I had a student, a graduate student, giving a talk a while back, and she was presenting what we think is the data or the data. And you just go through the thing. And someone asks a question at the end. She goes, well, I just don't think they act that way. It's like, well, exactly who are you talking about? Where's your evidence? And she didn't have any. Mm. We just have a sense that we all know what hunter-gatherers right. like. And that image is brutal, selfish, right. you know, living on the edge of starvation and so on. And it turns out that's wrong. Right. Um, and the other thing I was going to say, you see that even in uh, books 
from people who should know better. I won't mention any names. But <laughs> there are well-known books that sell well, and if they fail to make the distinction that you're talking about, immediate return and delayed return. And that's a really important distinction. Uh, immediate return seems to be the one that was closest to the one we evolved with. Uh, I mean, we don't know that with absolute certainty. That's hard to tell. But you, you can look at two things. One, the, the fossil record, the archaeological record. It seems to suggest our ancestors lived in small groups, very mobile. There was no, there were no signs of uh, inequality, no signs of status. And so it seems like they'd be small, egalitarian, mobile groups. When people started settling down, all of that changes. Uh, so the best evidence is that is probably what our ancestors were like. Uh, maybe some switching back and forth, but for the most part, uh, immediate return. The other reason, there are several reasons, but one other reason to think that maybe something to that, these immediate return hunter-gatherers, that when you look at this immediate return groups, they do show similarities across the world. So you're not just talking one group or two groups. Anywhere you find these groups, they have lots of features in common. Uh, actually, I'll tell you one. I, I keep talking. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you one more thing. They have taken these immediate return groups and they try to make them settle down. Usually it's a, a government or a religious group or something. So they said, look, the life you're living isn't great. Why don't you settle down? We'll teach you how to farm and so on. And they have a really hard time doing it because it's not their you know, mentality, their attitude, their totally. orientation. It's yeah. a real thing for them. Yeah. And they go, why? why should I put all this effort into to farm? Why can't I just go yeah. out and pick up my stuff? Right. And, um, they yeah. like autonomy. Exactly. Yeah. So can you tell me the difference between immediate return and delayed return? Yeah, there's a simple definition, uh, and we can elaborate upon it. The very simple definition is an immediate return group is a group that gets uh, now I'm going to forget. It. I think it's five percent. <laughs> it's either it's five percent or less, and it's usually less of their subsistence from farming or herding. Uh, they usually don't have any farms or animals whatsoever. They'll have dogs, but they're hunting dogs. But they don't have goats or sheep or you know cattle, and they don't have farms. If they have farms at all, it's not a farm. It's a little. They, they tend to some wild plants and so on. So if your foraging is the way they use. You go into the forest, find what's there for you. That's an immediate return hunter-gatherer. Uh, no storage, living day to day. But in our culture, that sounds bad. You live day to day, how are you gonna make right. it? <laughs> yeah. They live in a forest of plenty. Um, actually, let me tell you, I like this little yeah. story. Uh, you can get an insight into their attitudes and their way of thinking about the world, which I think in some ways is a better definition of immediate return. Mm. It's, a, it's a mindset. Mm. So I read this story of a, uh, this anthropologist, he's with his group, and he's you know just spending time with him for a couple of years. Mm. And at one point in time, he sees the hunter, you know, they're, they're small people, but still it's the big hunter. And he has his little baby with him. And he's singing a song to the little baby. So the anthropologist goes, Hmm. Let's go see what he's singing to the baby. So he tried to walk over there, not trying to walk over there nonchalantly, just to not interfere. And this is what he hears the father singing to the baby: "The forest is good. The forest is good." That's the whole song. <laughs> There's no other words. Mm. The forest is good, and that's how you grow up in that culture. Mm. You're a little person, and what do you learn? Mm. 
we live in a benign universe. Mm -hmm. What do we learn? Right. <laughs> like exactly what you learned when you were 16. Mm -hmm. It's coming to pieces. And yeah, so it's a whole different, it's a definition with regard to uh, subsistence, less than 5%, but it's also these other features. It's mm -hmm. a mindset. And that's the one I emphasize. Why don't you tell me a little bit about what your program is and what you're hoping to get out of it? I'll tell you briefly how I got into it. There was a, uh, a line of work, I'm not going to detail, but it's a line of work in psychology that I looked at and didn't like as the least. <laughs> it's, it was a popular theory and had a lot of work on it, but I just kept looking at it and said, there's something wrong with this. And one of the things it talked about was humans being focused on death and we have to worry about death and we can't die and we, we defend our in-group and, it, and it's this really sort of claustrophobic, yeah. defensive theory. And I said, that just doesn't seem right. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe people sometimes act that way, but the theory was portraying that as this is human nature. Totally. And I said, that, that can't be right. Yeah. And so what I did just to be sure is I went, I always say it's like these movies. I literally went to the library at the university here, got up on the fifth floor where the anthropology stuff is, and I was pulling all the books out and all the journals and things all stacked around me like in the movies and doing all of that. <laughs> and going through all that, what do other cultures say about mm -hmm. death and the mm -hmm. afterlife? And, you know, not surprisingly, when people write these books, they write books about cultures that have an afterlife and the Greeks believe this, the Egyptians believe that. And so it's really difficult to find a group that didn't have that, a culture that didn't have that. So in the midst of this big pile of books and journals, I'm going through that and I flip through this one book and it's this uh, chapter, a very small chapter, like eight pages. It was uh, Aspects of Death in Four Hunter-Gatherer Societies, African Hunter-Gatherer Societies. I'm reading that and so I'm, uh, they don't worry about death. They don't elaborate upon all of this. I mean, they don't want to die. They cry if their friends die, but it's just not a thing that they think about. And then it was by James Woodburn, and that's where he, that's where I first came across the distinction of immediate return mm. and delayed return. And it's like, that, that's something there. Yeah. Uh, prior to that, I had knowledge of like Zen and Eastern philosophies and so on. And they, the way they treat death and the afterlife is, life is very different. So I said, you got the so-called Eastern philosophies, you got these hunters and gatherers, and then I read about people who in the real life had had close brushes with death. And one of the things they talk about is, uh, I'm not afraid of death anymore, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm gonna put it off as long as I can, I don't wanna die. Right. But it doesn't bother me, and I have a whole different orientation towards life. And I think about my connection to other people, to living things, to nature, to being present. And you put all of that together, you go, one, two, three, and you're going, this is a big picture here. Mm -hmm. I think it's all the same thing. And then if you take the immediate return hunter-gatherer and go backwards in that, you go, it's out nature. Mm -hmm. And how did we get lost from that nature? Mm -hmm. That's, And that sort of became my question, that is there something inside of us we can define? And are we living that way? And I think the answer is no, we're, right. we're not yeah. living that way. Yeah. Um, and then, the, of course, the next question is, what does it take to get us back there? Right. It's funny. I had a similar experience uh, that drove me to question that. But it was when I was a teenager, I was in a movie making and I saw um, Terminator 2. <laughs> At the end of the movie, Arnold Schwarzenegger says, it's in your nature to destroy yourselves. And I remember being like, 
<laughs> I, I don't feel that way. Like, I don't feel like it's in our nature. But then I see that perpetuated in all these different movies at that time, especially like uh, The Fifth Element. There's a scene where, um, you know, Bruce Willis is like, it's in our nature to make weapons and kill, you know. And then in The Matrix, he's like, humans are a virus or whatever, you know. And I was just like, I don't I don't know. Um, yes. So that's what I propelled me into the same type of conclusion. thinking. If all you look at is what's happening in the world around you and you're going, we're nuts. Every time you turn around, there's another war, there's inequality, there's prejudice, there's, and you're going, we're a crazy species. Right. And it's like, no, not really. Yeah. There was, I'll tell you one way I think of it. I had this little phrase I like to think. People will often say this. If you look out through all of history, humans have been hostile. There have been wars. There have been slavery through all of history. And here's, here's what I say. I said, yes, that's correct. What about prehistory? Right. Yeah. And once you do that, it all falls apart. Totally. Something happened, as you noted, in the vicinity of 10,000 years ago. I mean, that's the, where people draw that line. Mm -hmm. And the, we had the life before then and the life after mm -hmm. then. We're putting up with the life after then, which is one of inequality and, mm -hmm. you know, prejudice and war and all of that. It's not our nature. Yeah. We, so we, I just want to say one last thing. We would not have survived if we had been this crazy species right uh, that's killing and not cooperative we survive through cooperation and sharing yeah we're actually a pretty good species <laughs> i agree <laughs> um so that kind of brings to this next thing is can you describe what the id compensation theory is it's a theory i came up with after reading all of these different things and i started trying to put them all together and systematize it in one spot where you go one, two, three, and here are some implications of that. So I'll just, uh, what do you call it, I'll decode the uh, uh, title. I, immediate return, which in the context of theory, I say that's our nature, it's in our genes. Uh, and I like to use the starting point of 200,000 years ago. Our species goes back farther than that, distant, distant ancestors. Totally. But the genetic work and the uh, fossil evidence at this point in time points to 200,000 as a start of what we call modern humans. The way I like to put it, you could take somebody from 200,000 years ago, dropping right here, cleaning up a little bit, we would not <laughs> know the difference. Right. Um, so 200, at least 200,000 years, we have this experience, evolution's working on us, and how did we live? Immediate return hunter-gatherers. So I'm going to say that's our genes. That's who we are. That's our nature. That's the I. Which the D, that's a delayed return world we're living in now. And again, I got those terms from uh, Woodburn. And he has very specific meaning of that. And I have expanded on it. But roughly one way of thinking about delayed return is to use that word delay. All of us engage in immediate effort for delayed uncertain payoff you know you go to school you get a job you put together a podcast and so on. you do all <laughs> the work beforehand for something that's going to happen a day later a week later a year later a life later you know you can you know, i've got to save for my retirement i got to save for my kids college education and, and you have 20 30 40 50 years of not knowing if that's going to work how could you possibly function in that context right well that's what I call the compensation. We make up rules. We make up stories. We tell ourselves it's going to be okay. In essence, we distort reality. So our immediate return nature has become lost in our delayed return society. 
to deal with that mismatch, we play head games. Uh, and that's where we get in all its problems. Um, we distort reality. We make a big difference between in-groups and out-groups. We justify inequality. We do bad things to the environment and think it's either it's both okay and we have to, and neither of those things are true. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the general idea. So what I've been trying to do in the research is, can I get evidence that we do have this immediate return nature? Can we find evidence of the inconsistency between that and a delayed return nature? What are the nature of these compensations people use? And then, of course, the last one is, can you make them stop those compensations, live here in the real world? And like you'd like to talk about sustainably in harmony with both the environment and our nature, which in some sense are the same thing, mm -hmm. the same idea. That make any sense? Yeah, that's great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you have your your lab at your college. Yeah. What kind of research stuff do you do there with students? Yeah, we, we are, first of all, a psychologist. What that means is we don't, I'd like to, but we, I haven't been trained in it, I haven't had the opportunity to go out and do archeological work or go live with some hunter-gatherer groups and so on, that'd be great. But what we do is take these ideas that have been uh, inspired by the archeology, span uh, the uh, anthropology and so on, and try to put them together where we can test something, as we like to say, in this little room, you know, for 30 minutes. So you bring a participant in and you do some things to them. And, you know, it's not going to be direct evidence, but if what we're seeing is correct, you'll see this, which makes us infer that and, and so on. I'll just give you one example. Cool. Uh, people always talk about meaning in life. We need meaning in life. What's, how could you have a life without meaning? Why? Why would you possibly live? You have to have meaning in life. Well, I don't think you have to have meaning in life. In the context of the theory, meaning in life, it's a story. It's a compensation. And if you think about your own behavior, suppose you, whatever you like to do, you're in the forest, you're playing tennis, whatever that thing is. If I stop you right in the middle of it, I said, you have meaning in life? <laughs> what kind of question is that? I'm playing tennis. I'm in the forest. Now you're at work. You hate your job. You don't know if you're going to get paid. You're, what am I doing here? What? Oh, it's going to work out. It'll be good. <laughs> Meaning in life is a story we make up mm -hmm. because we're not living in harmony mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. our nature. Now, so briefly, I'll tell you one study we did. We made up a little computer game, and there were three versions of the game. It's, it's an idiot's game, right? But it, it worked for our purposes. All that happens is a little rectangle comes up on the screen, and you're supposed to use the cursor to hit it. Three three types of games. One for one third of the participants, the, the little square comes, this rectangle comes up, and it sits there like five or ten seconds. Click. <laughs> then it goes away. The next one comes up. Click, and that goes on for five minutes. And they're going, boring, boring, boring. Well, the third condition, it comes up so fast you can't hit it. Click, 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 click. <laughs> oh, five minutes. And so both of those are the, the non-optimal conditions. You're not getting good feedback. It's, I can't do this. I can't. The third condition, it's just right. It hits that, you know, the Goldilocks point. Kind of fast, but you can hit it. So what we did after that, we asked them, after they played the game, do you have meaning in life? How happy are you? So we wanted to see, do they need 
meaning in life to be happy. It wasn't really how much do you have. Is there a relationship between meaning in life and happiness? And what you find is, yes, in the two bad conditions, it's really, really slow. What's happening here? I, there's got to be a reason for this. Something's going on here. Do you have meaning? Yes. Are you happy? Yeah. I figured out why I played that stupid game. <laughs> in the other condition, there's no connection whatsoever between meaning and happiness. I just played the game. Do you have meaning? Are you happy? Sure. Um, so it has to do are the under conditions in which we're not living the way we should. We're not living this immediate return. We're not getting feedback. We're not egalitarian. We're not sharing and so on. Uh, we make up stories. One form of that story is meaning in life. At least mm. that's what we think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's and awesome. so that, I mean, that's, do that's you think that has to do at all? Like, do you think that meaning is connected to like the myth of progress in some way too? Or do you think that like the idea of progress and that sort of linear, um, perception of time is, do you think they're interwoven or do you think one begat the other or I don't know what I'm trying to yeah, say? No, well, first of all, I haven't thought of those connections, but yes, it makes sense to me that there would be a connection. And like everything, I would not be surprised if it's, you know, circular. So somewhere along the line, maybe 10,000 years ago, people start thinking of progress and settling down and doing all of this. And we are the recipients of that. So when we grow up, we live in a world where there should be progress, there should be meaning, and so that just becomes our default. Mm -hmm. uh, but I suspect it started with using that as a justification for uh, not engaging in the right behavior. Totally. Um, yeah, and actually, I'll tell you this, this is, it was funny for me, I don't know if you, you'll find it funny, but I was talking about this in my class one time with a bunch of about 30 undergraduates, and I kept saying, we make up meaning, we make up stories, you, you have to find a reason to keep going if it's not this thing that, that's really you. And so just in the, after making that point, I just said, think about yourself right now. Drop all these stories that you have that keep you going. I said, what would you do? And like 30 faces just went, oh. And you see the whole class just sat there. And one person in particular goes, I wouldn't do anything. <laughs> I said, I said yeah, you see what's happening here? It's, we live our life in these stories. Uh, that's how we keep going. Totally. And you know, that's not inherently a bad thing to do. But when we rely upon that and the stories are false, and when we distort reality to maintain the stories, that's when there's a problem. It really resonates with me in terms of the meaning thing. Because, you know, there's, for me, in terms of rewilding, looking at the future <laughs> and reading about like nuclear technology and climate change and ocean acidification and ecological die-off and six extinction. It's kind of like, you know, how do you, the quest that I feel like I've been on since all of this is like, how do I find meaning in my life again? And I was reading your paper on this and I was like, oh, like maybe, how do I get no me? How do I find no meaning in life yes. again? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, in terms of looking at at progress, there's all of these attachments that I think about in terms of thinking about long-term future. And I think one of those is like the survival of the human race or something along those lines where I have this investment for whatever reason. Again, it's it, I think it's tied into this narrative. I have an investment in thinking about the future of humanity and wanting to make sure that humans survive or something. So I'm like part of it is trying to do all that stuff. But then when you read all of the things that kind of point toward who knows what the future is going to be like and maybe we're not going to live through the next whatever several thousand years you know 
it, it kind of puts me in this place where I'm like, okay, well then the only thing that matters is living in the moment. Yes. The, uh, I think there are two ways to talk about that. And one is sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like nihilist. Or, uh, live in a moment in that sense. And I think that's not necessarily the healthiest way. Yeah, right. But <laughs> I mean, it's like, what's the point? Yeah. And I don't think that's what we're talking about. Because when these hunter-gatherers live in the present, it, it's what you were talking about. Being in the present, watching themselves in the context of their environment, they, in fact, live sustainably. So it's not a case of all oh, just, I don't care, I'm going to get what I can as long as I'm alive. When you come back and pay attention here, you in fact live in harmony with things. The problem is, you know, this idea of progress, the idea of justifying the things we, we're doing. And yeah, let me give you this uh, analogy and see if that fits with anything you're, you're talking about. And I don't know how much you know about, uh, it's a fairly common story, like a wife, let's say. She gets abused by a husband. And let's use this example the husband says i work all day i'm going to come home at six o'clock i want my dinner ready at six well one day at 605 and the wife is still cooking the husband says i said six and he beats her well that's obviously not a good thing but what unfortunately happens in some of those cases you're probably familiar with this the wife the woman makes up a story oh he loves me that's the only reason he beat me and you know it was my fault because he said six o'clock and it was 605 and i didn't do it if i do the right thing next time, he won't beat me. She makes up a justifying story. The advantage for her of having that story is it makes her world a little bit more predictable. He's not some crazy guy. It's actually okay. It was my fault. I control it. But what else does that do? It makes it okay for her to stay in that relationship. And you go, don't stay in that relationship. It's a bad relationship. And if you didn't have that story, you would be out of there. Right. And so that's when I think about, real quick, this long-term progress and meaning. You know, it's this story that's allowed us to do these things that in the long run are hurting us. Yeah, I think it's better to drop the story because these stories and the meanings keep us engaged in this. It justifies engaging in this behavior that in the long run is hurting us. Totally. And stop doing that. And you say, well, why am I doing this? And you go, I, I don't know. I can't yeah. justify it. Well, what am I going to do? And that's when you come back to... You know, the blind, I always call it the blind taste test. These people said, well, I, I like Coke more than Pepsi. I like Pepsi more than Coke. Which one is this? I don't know. So how about this? Why don't we pick it up and see if you like it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just mm -hmm. taste it. You don't mm -hmm. need the story. And so I think that's how we should go through life. You don't need the story. Yeah. Just it makes me, it. Um, it makes me think of, uh, in terms of your story of justifications or creating the story to justify it, one of the reasons how I got into understanding the importance of the distinction between immediate return and delayed return was um, Margaret Power's book, The Egalitarians, Human and Chimpanzee, in which she looks yeah. at Jane Goodall's research. It's just fascinating to me that this idea of chimpanzee nature as violent is one that as a story that everybody likes to take up and use because it backs up their experience of yes. being in a world of abuse, right? Yes. Um, and it's very similar too to, um, in terms of hierarchy, the guy who invented or who popularized the alpha wolf as a perception yes. of wolf packs and then spent 30 years writing books about how he was wrong. There's no such thing as an alpha, but no one knows that. Every time you hear about yes. wolves, there's like, that's an alpha. And even in dog training and all that stuff. And it's just one of those things where it's like, that's the world that we live in. So we're creating all of these narratives. But how do you, 
if we're like storied in that way and you're saying to change, are you saying to drop the story and narrative or are you saying to change them? Like how do you, and, and how do you exist without a story in that regard? Uh, <laughs> I'm hesitating because there's what I say <laughs> and what I could justify. <laughs> what I say is drop your story. And mm -hmm. I always tell people, drop your story, drop your story. And they'll go, do you really mean that to you? It's like, well, you know, <laughs> It's, yeah. <laughs> yes, Drop your story is what I, that's my story. That's my story. And the way I like to think of it, if you drop everything up here, then there's going to be nothing left. And you go, well, what do I do? What do I like? But you're going to find out from here. It's going to be what the term we use in psychology is bottom up. It's coming from my feelings. It's coming from my genetics. It's coming from my actual preferences. Live that life. And once you're living that life, if you're developing stories, develop it on the basis of that. Don't develop the kind of stories we had before. We have a projection. You have something that you have to defend. You have to. So you can have stories, but it would be better if they were based on your experience mm. rather than what you would hope to happen. Mm. Mm -hmm. So when I tell people what to do, yeah, it's drop your stories. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you can get them back, but drop the ones <laughs> you have right now. Sure. Yeah. I think that's better. Let me. I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you see people and they go through these little things, they're out there for a week, they're in the forest, they're learning these skills. Do you think their attitudes change? What, what do you see in them? I mean, absolutely. That, you know, there used to be um, a time when I, I don't do as much programming as I used to in terms of developing, but we used to develop programs. And the whole idea was to essentially do what you're saying, which is, to drop the story. And um, I went through these trainings of like vision quests or what they called vision quests then of like yes. going out. And, and um, one of the, the things that they constantly said was fast, like a vision quest is a fast from all things familiar. So yes, you're out and you don't have anything that's familiar to you. you you're not getting any stimulus from culture. And the idea was that because nature has no agenda, whatever happens there in your quest is going to come without that narrative, right? But yes. generally, generally, when people do those types of quests, it, it, they come back from them feeling, um, again, I would think in terms of uh, using the word meaning, like they found meaning for themselves. But, yes. uh, but after reading, you know, and talking with you, it, it's, it's kind of hard to... It, it, to define if that's actually the experience that they're having. They're just using the word meaning to describe it, right? But like- I think that's correct. Yeah. I, I, what I've done is made a distinction between two, uh, well, <laughs> meanings, two forms of the word meaning, because people do use that. And there is a sense in which you go on the quest. Yeah, I've known people who've walked the Appalachian Trail, and they said first day kind of hard, second day, third day, something starts to happen to you and, and it's, it's everything you're talking about you've lost culture you lost the expectations you're back to your yourself and when you come back you have a sense of meaning mm -hmm. but i think what they what's meant by that uh, form of the word is you know what to do you know the rules of the game so to speak not from the culture's perspective but from your perspective I know what's important in life. I know what's, I'm going to go back and tell my parents I love mm. them. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to, you know, you. I know what I need to do in life. It's not the other kind of meaning, which we should come up with another word for that. It's not the justification. I'm going to come back and I'm going to stick with that job because <laughs> I see in the long run 
just the right. exact opposite. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've known and I've read some stories of people who've had, quote, well, usually they're, they're suffering from cancer or some a terminal diagnosis. And one of the common things that happened to them, and it sounds a little harsh, but you got to think it from their perspective, they jettison people from their life. But the people they jettison are the ones that I think we all have to some extent in our life. You got your really close friends, and you got these acquaintances and so on. You spend time with them, but maybe, you know, it's a little effortful. And, and when you get close to death, you go, well, I'm not going to spend any time with you anymore. Uh, and there's sometimes that blunt. I mean, I, I'm just not going to spend time with you anymore. <laughs> but I think there's, there's that sense, that you get a sense of, you know, purpose, meaning, whatever you want to call it, but it's not the kind of justifications we're talking about. I know who I am. I know what I should be doing here, and I'm going to do it. And everything else goes by the wayside. So come up with a word for that. And, <laughs> and we'll be right. in good shape. Yeah. It makes me think of a man named Martin, Martin Prechtel who does, um, it's kind of hard to explain what he does, <laughs> but he does like community ritual therapy type things. And he was like part of the Mayan society village was like indoctrinated into their society and came back to the United States and teaches some of the stuff there. But one of the things that he says in his thing is that when you're done with a ritual, what you want isn't to feel good. What you want is to feel alive. Yes. And I, and I just think about that. And I was thinking about that a lot as I was reading your paper on meaning. It kind of goes with that Joseph Campbell quote that you had at the end too, yeah, which is like, quote. you know, we're yes. not, yeah, we're not, a, we're not looking for meaning. We're looking for the experience of being alive. Like, you know, it's funny because I just feel like there's this deep entrenched idea for me to like constantly be seeking meaning in this like tumultuous time where all of the narratives are just kind of like up in the air and, and uh, in terms of the future. And so it's really grounding, I think, to come back to that idea and to just think about, even for me, who I spend a lot of time educating people in nature and kind of creating these types of situations, but I'm not always like taking care of myself in that regard. And then I get trapped <laughs> in the like the spiral of trying, is, does my life have meaning anymore? <laughs> you know? Yes, it's, it's hard to get out of those. And that's why one of the things I've studied is the, this close brush with death. And I think the reason I'd say good one, it's not, not the only one, but that's the kind of thing you go on. Uh, you know, yes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work on this. I'm gonna do that. I got it. And then when it happens to you, you go, okay, mm -hmm. now I get it. Mm -hmm. I, I should mention it has never happened to me. <laughs> I, I study these things, and people go, well, what was your wake up call? Uh, did you almost die? I go, no, I, I just read about this stuff. Yeah. But I always have this suspicion that if it happened to me, it would be very different than, you know, the way we're talking about it now. It's not an idea. It's not a a goal. It's and experience mm -hmm. and you know mm -hmm. that what, what you're living is, is i'll tell you this and i think it relates to what we're talking about i was talking about some of this in one of my classes and uh it's a little awkward but an undergraduate came after class and he goes oh, i really like what's going on here and it's all oh, the stuff you're talking about is great and i'm thinking okay good but the next thing he goes well i have cancer and i'm dealing it's like oh gee I mean, here's the person really going through it, sitting in my class. Uh, but he said, you know, it's it's consistent with what's happening to me and so on, so that made me feel better. But he, he said one thing, he, he changed things a little bit. He says, when people have close brushes with death, they often talk about, you reorder your life. You, you, things that weren't important become important. He says, it feels slightly different to me. He says, I haven't taken on new values. It's not so much that I change things that used to be. 
I went back to the way I knew all along I should be. Mm. He says, all of us know all along what we should be doing. Mm. We just don't do it. He says, something like a close brush of death snaps you out of that. And you do have knowledge of what to do. It's right in here. Mm. But we ignore that. We are going to school. I got to go to work. I'm not going to eat that because I'm trying to lose weight. And all of these stories we tell ourselves, all of these things that take us away from who we are. At some point in time, you go, what am I doing all of that mm. for? Mm -hmm. Boom, right back to yourself, which was there all along and never left. Yeah. Um, it makes <laughs> me think, too, I, I was reading about how patients with terminal cancer were in an experiment where they were given psilocybin mushrooms. <laughs> yes. And they were reporting like having an experience where they were then like more comfortable with the idea of dying and stuff like that. So I'm wondering, you know, if plant assistance in that regard to like have that experience is something you've ever thought about or, um, you know, like it's here in Oregon, they're actually getting pretty close to legalizing psilocybin as a medicine for those types of situations. And I'm wondering if, you know, like in terms of a vision quest or that type of thing, if like you've thought about hallucinogens or anything <laughs> like that, well, it just popped into my mind. Short answer is yes. Uh, and I do know some people are doing research on that. And there does seem to be some advantage to it. It seems to be there are certain conditions that facilitate it, but I don't know the research well enough to, to know what that is. Mm -hmm. But I think part of what it does is, it's like you're saying, it, it just you know wipes the slate clean. And you have an experience that just doesn't make sense in terms of everything you knew prior to that. And when you come back, you almost have to start from scratch again. Mm -hmm. um, I have had some people, students, who would take things and come tell me about it. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you what happened to me and so on. Yeah. Again, this is my own personal take on this and other people might have different things. They would often say things like this. Well, I started having this, this vision and then this thing cleared up and I realized it was my totem ancestors. They would see things. Now, I can't tell them that that didn't happen, but, but what concerns me about that is all they did was make another story. You had this story that you're living here, and now I got a new story mm. based on my totem ancestor. Interesting. It's like, I, I can't tell you that didn't happen. I'm not going to argue against your experience. I'm a little concerned that all you did was make another story. Mm. So I like dropping stories, dropping mm. stories, mm -hmm. dropping the stories. Um, there's the, uh, I, some people know that quote by uh, Philip K. Dick, reality is that which when you stop believing it, doesn't go away. You know that? <laughs> That's awesome. It, it, yeah, I think it's, it's there's something to it. Mm -hmm. But I think we have things we believe, and we're going through this all the time. Drop, drop, drop. Stop believing. What's left? That's reality. Awesome. That's how you want to live your life. Um. So, but yeah, but <laughs> go back to the short answer. Yes, I think there can be some benefit for it. <laughs> um. How do you want your work to influence society? Uh, the, yeah, that's a big question. First of all, my orientation towards things, I'm like the classic pure researcher. I just do the stuff, that's all I care about. I think it does have implications, but it's like, well, I, you know, what are you gonna do? I mean, you know, there's always people that tried to do things. All they did was kill them. Right. <laughs> so, I have no interest in that. <laughs> so then you start thinking, it's like, well, 
there are some of my students who are taking this and doing other things. Uh, one person's becoming a therapist and he tends to use some of this in therapy. Another person went into uh, business consulting and he tends to take that into business. So I think in the long run, that would be the, the idea, uh, to take it and actually do things. And the longer run, I think it would come closer to the kind of thing you're talking about if you changed the mindset and ideally the mindset of you know everybody, <laughs> the mindset of decision makers, whatever it takes, but somehow get ourselves uh, out of this story. Actually, let me tell you this one. This is the, the example I use for a, the kind of culture story we're living in. There are things called, uh, cult, one name for them is culture-bound syndromes. And those are, let's call them disorders that take place in localized cultures. And everybody knows about them. Everybody suffers from them. Sometimes there are epidemics and everybody's suffering from this at once, but they aren't real in a sense that they don't have a biological cause. It's not a bacteria or a virus or something of that sort. It's, it seems to be in their head. Uh, and I'll say this one without getting into too much detail. Koro, uh, K-O-R-O. It, uh, I'll make it brief. It's the belief that your, I call it junk, <laughs> is sex stuff. You know, it's both <laughs> males and females. It's retreating into your body. You're losing your stuff. <laughs> People, yikes! This is not good. And then if if you tell me, I, I think I think I got it. Next thing you know, I, I got it too. And then everybody we talk to suddenly the whole place has it, and it's not real. There's no mm -hmm. such thing. Mm -hmm. And so you say, what is this whole culture? They're making themselves sick for no reason. Now, bring it back to our culture. How about this? Uh, meaning in life. Well, mm -hmm. you got to have meaning in life. I don't have meaning. I don't know. I think that's kind of like Koro. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're making yourself mm -hmm. sick. Uh, there's some <laughs> reason to believe that romantic love, the way we think of it, is a culture-bound syndrome. Totally. I mean, th that doesn't mean you don't feel it, oh, I'm in love, but we created it ourselves. And so that's part of it. I think the whole culture, by that I don't just mean the United States, modern culture is caught up in these various stories. Yeah. Ideally, I would like people to see that they're stories. That makes me think of um, this martial arts thing where there's this martial art called Kiai, and it's basically the idea that you can use energy to push opponents away. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a Kiai master who, you know, had trained all these people up in, you know, manipulating them by not even like touching them, basically just like moving his hands and they'd fall over and all this stuff. And somebody saw it that was like an MMA fighter or something. I don't remember the who it was, but they were like, I want to fight you to the Kiai master. And he was like, OK. And they start fighting and he just punches the guy in the face. <laughs> Like the, he punches the Kiai master in the face and knocks yeah. him out. And everybody's just kind of like, whoa, like in disbelief. And it's all because this guy had created this whole uh, yes. story around himself, right? That he could do this. And then all the students were just all buying into it in the same way and like and feeling in their body that they were being thrown that's, down and all this stuff. But here comes yeah. this guy, right, who doesn't see the story. He just sees what's going on and he offers to fight them. It's like the emperor has no clothes or something, you know? Yes. Yeah, and I think that's part of the problem is that these things can feel real. And think about yourself when you're thinking, oh, maybe I need meaning in my life. Maybe there's got to be something in this. And when you're thinking that, 
don't you feel bad when you don't yeah. have meaning? Right. It's not necessarily a self-fulfilling prophecy, but it's something like that. Oh, I need meaning. I need meaning. Look how rotten I feel when I don't have meaning. Okay, stop thinking you need meaning. Yeah. That was easy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it makes me think like, you know, and for me, I really like your, the tennis metaphor that you used earlier, where you're like, if I stopped you in the middle of playing tennis and be like, do you, does your life have meaning? Like, what are you talking about? I'm playing tennis. I feel like there's a, that's, that's kind of a lesson right there to, to, for me to hear that and be like, okay, so if there's a moment where I'm like, I need to find meaning, then I'm like, wait, no, I need to just like go play tennis yes. or like go just yes. do the thing. Like, what is the thing that makes me feel the most alive and do that, right? And then maybe I'll get in that feeling again of like not feeling like I'm searching or that I'm failing or, you know, all the things that come up with that. Yes. Uh, the way I like to put it is why I tell people drop drop their stories is I think our stories, let's say the number of stories you have, you start listening, the more you have the more of an indication it is that you're, you're out of whack. You're not playing that tennis game and so on. It's like, oh, gee, I want to play tennis, but I'm not. I'm playing tennis, but I'm not any good. I'm not. And then you make up all of the stories. Right. You say, drop the stories. And as soon as you do, you'll come back. You go, well, maybe I should be doing something other than playing tennis. Yeah. Maybe this isn't a thing for me. Yeah. Find that thing that gets me here where I don't have to have the meaning. And I think, you know, examine your stories as evidence of how much out of harmony with things you are. I haven't done that with it. I have this thing I like. I see if you like it or not. I read this definition of religion that comes from uh, William James. And he says he was trying to get a bottom line definition that covers the commonalities of every religion in the world. I like what he came, I like, I like what he came up with, though. And he says, religion is the belief that there is an unseen order, God, the Tao, uh, Brahman, and so on. There is an unseen order, and our highest good lies in adjusting ourselves harmoniously there, too. And so when I talk about it in class, I always say, like, well, you know, put my hand up there, there's one, that's the two. And look how we cross with that. That's us. We're, we're doing the wrong thing. What you want to do is get in harmony with those things. So if you think about it like that, and now take it away from traditional religion, and let's say what that unseen order is, is nature. Right. It's your nature. It's your hunter-gatherer nature. It's you being in harmony with the, the ecosystem. And you say, well, let me see. If I operate in harmony with that, that's your highest good. Now, if you want to add God on top of that and so on, that's fine. But you still get to the same point. Right. Live in harmony with this totally. reality that's outside of your stories. I feel like from that perspective, you could say that religion itself is compensation, right? It's uh, ID compensation. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And that it's uh, necessary in that regard. Uh, yes. I think I make this distinction. You have to go back. I, it's not just me. This distinction is made in the field. Yeah, if you go back in the neighborhood of, I always say 11,500 years, I try to get precise. <laughs> that's when That's when people started settling down. They weren't actually engage in agriculture yet in terms of farms they didn't build cities but they're starting to settle down and around that time they built this thing uh, gobekli tepe i'm not going into detail but a lot of people know about it but it's like gee how did he build this giant thing they weren't farmers they they didn't have all of these people that, that organized it. it was hunters and gatherers well what they think they used the word religion it was a religious center but what they think was happening there is that as hunter-gatherers in the early days, we would live in small groups spread out across the landscape. I'd be in my group of about 24. 
somewhere down the road, you and your group of 24, 25, whatever, somewhere over there, and so on. So we had these little groups on any given day who would go back and forth. I would share with you, you would share with me. I spend, you know, a couple of nights in your camp. You go spend a night in the other camp, and everybody's going back and forth. So it looks like humans may be unique in the, the uh, animal kingdom, and that's why the comparison of chimpanzees is perfect, that we want to belong in a small group, but at the same time, we stay aware of our connection to the large group. Yes, I know who's in that group. I'm going to go over there tomorrow. It's us and this bigger group. At some point in time, we start settling down. Food is becoming scarce. At some point in time, you show up at my place, I'm going, oh, this isn't a good time. We don't have much to eat. See you later. And you're going, hey, what? how can you do that? And I think there was a time when I was starting to get this tension in which our behavior was opposed to our nature. We should share. We should be autonomous. We should be equal. And we just can't do that much anymore. And so I think the first religious ceremonies were the ones around places like Gobekli Tepe. You would bring some food from your place. I'd bring some food from my place. We'd all get together. We'd dance and we'd sing and we'd share. And we'd go, okay, we're okay now. We're still good. It was meant to bring us all together and get in harmony with each other in that sense. What started happening is that became harder and harder to do. And so they had to have what they called hard to fake science of commitment to the group. And it's like, hey, wait, who the heck are you? I, I, what are you doing here? You're not a part of this group, are you? You know how I know? Because we have the round haircuts. You have a square haircut. <laughs> right. yeah. Therefore, it's, and so we used to have things that were in-group and out-group. And the religion, these rituals, started taking that quality. So it wasn't a quality to bring all of us together. It was a quality of our group together with that group on the other side. Mm -hmm. And I think when you put religion in that context, it it's not necessarily a good thing. It started off as this thing, we're just all together, and then it became something else. Mm -hmm. And I think in essence, saying compensation. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah, don't need it, don't need uh, it, <laughs> don't need yeah, uh, Actually, let me just say one other mm -hmm. thing, because when, when people hear us, I'll put you in that too, <laughs> talking <laughs> this way, they'll go, well, but what's gonna happen, and how do we control anything, and, and how do we go forward, and, and people are gonna start killing us. If my explanation is, yeah, no. And the reason they're not going to do it is because they're going to come back to their true nature. The reason we're having problems now is we're not living that way. And so you get into this weird cycle. We're not living that way, so we make up stories. We're making up stories that makes us not live that way. It justifies not living that way. We start doing bad things, therefore make up more stories, and it's right. drop the stories. So what are the biggest challenges in the work that you do and why? Well, the main one, uh, two, <laughs> the main one is what one we already talked about. Everybody thinks they know what hunter-gatherers are. Um, that's kind of like the paleo diet. Well, eat lots of meat. <laughs> well, uh, right. No, that wasn't, that was not the paleo <laughs> diet. Uh, that's not what our ancestors yeah. said. Uh, so they'll have uh, cartoons that speak very, I mean, I mean, this is in the field even, you know, and I've been criticized in the field. People write comments back. Well, what about that group? What about that group? What about that group? That doesn't do what you think. But every time they do that, you're going, yeah, that's a delayed return group. Mm -hmm. That's a delayed return. Mm -hmm. So they don't understand that distinction. So it's hard to get out the basic point. And it's like, here's our point. Again. The other thing that's a little difficult is the field, the way it's set up, doesn't lend itself to this kind of research. 
So these are sort of big questions and, you know, draws on evolution and Joseph Campbell and religion. And, and it's like, uh, well, kind of give me that one study that, that shows all of this. You're going, that's hard to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we're working on it. And the way you do it is a little piece mm-hmm. at a time. And, mm-hmm. you know, if we get there, we get there. If we don't, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? What do you say in terms of people who claim that uh, you're romanticizing immediate return or delayed return or any of those types of things? Yeah, no, that's a good question because I that has been a criticism. Well, I've seen that criticism, not so much of what I've done, uh, but a little bit. Uh, and I think there are two things about that. If you look at the field carefully, it goes in both directions or is it possibility? People can go in both directions. And one is the one we already talked about. Uh, it comes from Hobbes, right? Life is short, nasty, brutish. It's a war of everybody against everybody else. And it, if it, we didn't have society, it would be terrible. It's like, that's that's wrong. So yeah, that's right. that's the opposite of romanticizing. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's inaccurate. And the other one is the Rousseau version, which is like, everybody's perfect. And if we right. all went to the hunter-gatherers. And, and so I think there's two ways to get around that. One, just actually look at the data. <laughs> just go see what people are actually finding. And that's what I try to do with my characterizations of the different societies. I just try to say, here's what anthropologists have found when they go into that group. This, 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 ours is that, that, that. I mean, you know, there it is. So you just put it out there. Um, the other thing you have to say is that these are, I guess, continua. Uh, it's, so it's not they are completely over here, we're completely over there. They have autonomy more than we have autonomy. They have sharing more than we have sharing and so on. Um, the other thing that I've talked about often in my class, because uh, you don't want to say like, oh, these guys are perfect and so on. First of all, it's not them. It's the society. I mean, they're just like us. You put them anywhere, they'll, they'll act just like we do. Um, I'm going to forget what the other thing I was saying. Oh, yeah, yeah. The other one is that there are advantages to our society. So if you only focus on this, look, they have autonomy, they have sharing, they're immersed in nature, they live in the present, so look how good that is. And that's correct, it's research showing those things are good. And somebody's gonna say, well, if you need an open heart surgery, <laughs> where would you wanna be? We could not have this conversation if you and I were hunters and gatherers and so on. So I like to say, yes, there are benefits to this delayed return society, but those benefits came at a cost. Right. And the cost is losing harmony with who totally. we really are. Yeah. And the problem with that is not only is it just a big thing that affects everything, but we all pay the cost, so it doesn't seem to be a cost. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to what we said earlier. You see, people are bad. Humans are bad people. No, we're all paying the cost and don't see it. Totally. That's the cost of, of all of this that we have yeah. here. Yeah. Um, what's the most exciting thing to you right now in terms of your research? Like, what are you really excited about? Yeah, there are, there are, I'll talk about two things. And one is uh, drawing the connection. Uh, I, I, I've done it in, in papers, but I want to get closer to drawing it in, in the actual research. There does seem to be a connection between all of these things we're talking about and people who have wake-up calls. Uh, those wake-up calls often is close first with death. I mentioned that before. That's a good one. But I've read stories of people who hike, uh, talk to people, actually, hike the Appalachian Trail. I've read some things where people swim with dolphins. Look at the dolphin. <laughs> so the number of things that can give you this wake-up call. And when people wake up, 
when you hear how they describe their life afterwards, I used to do this, now I do that. You know, maybe I see everything through the same lens, but I'm going, boy, that shit looks to me like they went from delayed return mm. to immediate return. Mm. And so I want to see if there's that kind of connection, that there really is this immediate return nature inside of us, and it's always there. But we bury it in these stories, and all it takes is, you know, the old metaphorical slap in the face, and you go, and you come back. So we're trying to think of ways to, to test that, and we haven't completely gotten them yet, but we're thinking about it. Uh, go ahead. Um, I, that just a question that just popped into my head, which is in terms of the people who have had these near-death experiences and wake-up calls, have you followed up with them like years later to find that they're like back at the crappy job that they had? You know, yeah. like that. How is there a time yeah. frame for how long? that type of experience and perception will last after a wake-up call type situation? Yeah, I'm going to make a point before I answer that question. And the point is not any encounter with death will do something to you. It'll do something to you, but it won't necessarily <laughs> give you a, a real wake-up call. And I can give you an example of uh, my uh, niece. Uh, she, she had a car crash and she survived. So she had this close brush with death. I'm using her as an example, but what happened to her is very consistent with, with, with what you see in the field. So she was in a, a car on the interstate, and the cars in front of her start collapsing into one of the boom, boom, this multi-car pileup, and she hits the brakes too late. Boom, she hits a car in front of her. The airbag goes off and so on. Well, that was bad, but that wasn't the close pressure of death. So as soon as that happened, she goes, oh, kind of survived. And then she hears this noise behind her, looks in the mirror, it's an 18-wheeler. She's she, she coming behind her, trying to stop. And it's not going to stop. Yeah. And so she looks like you got a second. She looks around like, get the seatbelt, get out the door. And it's not going to happen. So I talked to her after, you know, she healed and so on. She said, at the time, I had two thoughts. One, this is it. This is where I die. Yeah. I mean, everybody, oh, well, one day we're going to die. No. Here, right. now, like this, in this car, crushed by a truck. I'm not getting past the next second. This is it. And the second one is the one that was counterintuitive, but not uncommon. Her next comment was this to herself, it's okay. Mm. And, and you see that over and over and over. And I, without going into detail, I talked to this husband and wife who were drowning. And the wife got to the point where she says, look, save yourself. I'm going to die. Uh, don't worry about it. He goes, no, no, come on. And she goes, no, you don't understand. It's okay. Yeah. I'm just going to go to the bottom and die. And I think what happens at that point is, in essence, two things. You give up all the goals, all the stories, and you say, what was I doing? <laughs> what was all of that stuff about? <laughs> right. And once all of those things are away, you don't have the mm -hmm. meaning, you don't have the stories, mm -hmm. and you don't have the future to worry about. You go, all of that was just stuff I was making up. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> and you're right in harmony with reality. Mm -hmm. Now you don't want to die, and fortunately right. these people don't. Yeah. But they come back having seen that their stories yeah. were nothing but stories. Yeah. And so you come back right here in reality, in the present, and you go, that is different. That's what that's the meaning. That's what it's all about. So, uh, I have, um, well, my niece. I think I can hear your dog snoring. <laughs> I just want to, I just want to, you don't have to wake them up or anything. I'm just wanting to let like well, let the audience know if there's, if they can hear the snore okay. sounds that that's your dog. Yes. Well, <laughs> no, I'm not, they, not me. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> well, that's good for them. Um, so let me, let me finish the, the part of that question there. Yeah. I 
have not followed up on these people, but there is research on that. Uh, and what the research shows is th they stay this way, mm -hmm. at least if you had that, that kind of experience. Mm -hmm. uh, this one person, it's a paper I read, talks about, he used the word slip out. You slip out of it once in a while. So you, know, you caught in traffic, you're at work, and you come out. He says, but not for long. He says it does not go away. Hmm. He says the only other thing that blocks it is intense pain. And if hmm. you really, really hurt, you know, uh, but that's that's it. He says intense pain and occasionally getting caught in the world. But you always come back. And, and I think, you know, the, the old saying, you can't unring the bell. And I think that's what happens there. Once you've seen that these stories are nothing but things you made up here, you can't go back and make them back up. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now, go back and believe in Santa Claus again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. you can't do it. Yeah. And I think it's something like that. And once you do that, you're right back to that. Yeah. Whatever that is, you know. So, what is your team working on, and how, like, what kind of support would anybody listening be able to give to your projects if that was? you know, potential, or if people wanted to get involved, students or anything like that, how does that work? Uh, that's a good question. It's a useful question. <laughs> I think of a good answer for that one. <laughs> uh, because I think the, the people listening, as I understand these people, they probably are seekers. They're probably asking questions like this in their life. They probably have had experiences that have opened up to things different than the society and so on. So I think it would be a, a good resource for, for something like this. And I think at this point, it's like they could tell me. I mean, you know, you're the ones that has this thing. I'm just back here studying it. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so getting reports from people like that. I mean, I have talked to people, who, I said before, who have hiked the Appalachian Trail, and they go, oh, the, the only problem with this, these kind of things, people find it difficult to articulate. And the guy was saying, I was into you know, my third day on the Appalachian Trail, and and you see him struggling for words and it was like what and then one foot was in front of the other foot and and he just can't he just doesn't know what to say um but we, we talk about it yeah so it'd be interesting if they had experiences if their life was one way and changed another way you know we'd be open to hearing mm -hmm. that i was trained i mentioned this a little bit earlier as a traditional experimental social psychologist what that means is we develop these studies and you bring somebody into a room for half an hour and you expose them to this and you measure that. So, so we're taking one person at a time in a room to get a finding. Uh, but we would like to expand that to talk to people in the real world and see what their experiences are. I just had another thought, which was, again, I'm going back to like your sports metaphor of, of playing tennis or whatever sport in the middle. You know, like there's that yes. thing that athletes call the zone Yes. Where you're just in the flow of the game and participating and you're not really thinking. Right. And I'm wondering if there's any type of like brain waves and that type of um, study that has been done in this regard in terms of feeling thoughtless or storyless and just participating in the world experientially. If you've ever done any anything like that with, you know, like neurofeedback or something along those lines. Yes. No, I haven't because I, and I'm not even sure I know research that have done, done the uh, approach to the issue the way you're talking about. There is one line of work that I thought was interesting, and it looks at. Uh, it doesn't really matter. It's like the temporal lobe. It's part. It's in your right hemisphere, um, and 
what that part of the brain uh, moderates, I guess you could say, is the sense of your body in space. So there's me and there's you. But under some conditions, I think it's overactivated. I think it is not under, I think it's over. But anyway, then it's you and I are the same person. Uh, we're together and so on. And a couple of things that are interesting about that, actually I'll tell you this example first. They had a uh, hospital ward with people all in the same room who had a brain damage to the right hemisphere. So their sense of self and other were disrupted. So the doctor comes in, he starts talking to patient one. Okay, can you do this? Open your mouth, do this. Turns out every patient in the room is doing that. <laughs> they could not make the distinction between the doctor talking to guy one and me. We're, all, we're the same person. Well, that's obviously not a good way to be. <laughs> but can we move more towards that in a sense of empathy? Mm -hmm. It's like, gee, it happened to you. I know what that's like. Mm -hmm. You know, I got a lot. You don't have a lot. Can I give to you? And one of the things that seems to activate the right hemisphere in this way we're talking about is uh, rituals, uh, religious rituals, uh, dancing, drumming, rhythmic things, possibly walking in the, in the forest. We're doing some work on that as well. Mm -hmm. um, and that seems to open people up. Uh, so that would be a way to do it. And it has to do with that part of the brain, but we're not looking at that directly. Yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. Th there is another line of work, which I, I actually thought about addressing only a couple of days ago. So <laughs> I haven't done a thing on it, but there's a line of research on uh, mindfulness. But this woman talks about mindfulness slightly different than maybe the way most of us tend to think about it. it was mindfulness as you meditate, your, your presence on. Her version is a little bit different. <clears throat> she talks about mindlessness as being caught up in your scripts. So you and I start the conversation. Hey, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing? And we, we know what we're supposed to say. And it's really inane. Yeah. Hey, good talk, good talking to you. And you go, what? What's that all about? But suppose we stop all of that and I'm going, you know, what are you doing right now? Who are you? And mm -hmm. and now we have a real conversation. And that's what you call mindfulness. You're not following the scripts. You're, you're here in the present. And one of the studies she's done was uh, went into these retirement homes. And you have these people who, you know, day after day, maybe you're doing the same things. Can we get these people to be mindful? And the way she would do it was give them, you know, I don't know, a, a pen. What is this? It's a pen. What do you do with it? Write. Give me three other things you could do with it. Uh, throw it at somebody. Use it to pry open a lid. You just not put things in the same category. Think about something different. And it turns out if you do that, there are a lot of benefits, one of which in this particular study, the people who were mindful lived longer. Hmm. Going, well, that's a pretty good benefit, I would say there. So the question is, is there are there ways other than things like close brushing with death or <laughs> drugs and so on? <laughs> just little things, you know, what is that pen? Can you and we use them in our life day by day. Don't just follow the story. Think of something different. It makes me think of improvisational theater. Yeah, that would do it. Yeah, in the same I mean, way. Yes. And if you're familiar with koans in, in Zen, the, the, a koan is a, uh, a confrontation that the master will give to the student, and it doesn't seem to make any sense. And the reason it doesn't make any sense is because the student is approaching it with the way we always think. And you probably know that this classic one, we all know the sound of two hands clapping. What's the sound of one hand? Or you know, one hand clapping. Yeah. People go, 
<laughs> yeah. like, and all of those are wrong. There's no one right answer. Yeah. But the idea is don't think of it as its function, its relation to something else. Don't think of the way you always think of it. What is it? I, uh, yeah. I talked to a, a monk once, and uh, he talked about his training. And they would line all the novices up, and the master would come by and he goes, who are you? And there's no right answer. You can't say your name. Mm -hmm. That's just your name. Smack. He goes to the next guy, who are you? I'm a student of the book. No, you're not. <laughs> there's no right answer. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll tell you what happened to him because it's consistent with what you're not supposed to do. So they're in line and they keep saying every day, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? No right answer. So he says, one thing the guy next to him goes, I'm an egg. <laughs> and, and for some reason, the master goes, <laughs> and he, he likes that one. And he moves on to the, the guy I knew. And he goes, who are you? The guy goes, I'm an egg. <laughs> he gives the same answer. He goes, you're not an egg. <laughs> you can't just use the yeah. stories you've already been given. Yeah. There's no one right answer. But whatever it is, it's going to come from here. It's going mm -hmm. to come from inside. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it'd be interesting to find those kinds of life hacks, to use the, the current term. Mm -hmm. uh, could you do it yourself? Right, mm -hmm. and that'd be another way to do it. So don't, you know, I, I like the forest idea, the wilderness idea. I mean, I like the, <laughs> the drug idea <laughs> in the context of what we're talking about. Right. Yes. <laughs> do it legally. Yeah. Uh, and there are a number of ways to do it, but wouldn't it be great if we'd come up with these hacks? Mm -hmm. Wake up in the morning and give me ten uses for a pen. Mm -hmm. uh, tomorrow, when you eat your breakfast, I know you're going to eat some toast. Give me three other uses for that piece of toast. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. who knows what that would do? Yeah. But that's that's the, my latest thing. Yeah. That's like two days old. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, so we'll see. Is there anything mm -hmm. else that you'd like to share about your work and what you're doing? That I haven't, you know, a question I haven't asked. Do you have any questions for me? The, uh, I'll say two things. The, one is in relation to the way... Uh, way people have responded to this for every time there's somebody goes like oh hunter gatherers don't do that i don't know what you're talking about how do we know what evolution was and, and they'll give you a hard time on the theory but when i talk about this in, in class and you're talking one-on-one -on, -one on people it hits them and i think the reason it does I, not because i'm so good i think it's <laughs> they have a sense that there's something to it now, maybe the way I'm describing it is wrong. Maybe the theory is not precise and so on. But when they hear this story that what you're, you're doing might just be all of these stories and it's not really you, there's an authentic self inside of you that you're missing, they respond to that. And so that makes me feel that even if it's not exactly right, well, I'm going to put you in here too, but either of us are doing that the general idea we're on to is totally. something there. Uh, that there is something that seems to have gotten lost Mm -hmm. And people kind of know that, and they want somebody to mm -hmm. push them back in the right direction. Uh, uh, one last thing is that you don't, people who are going to be in a position to, you know, push you in the right direction, you cannot say, this is the kind of job you should have. Or you should definitely go walk in the woods or whatever it has to be. It's, it's each person's going to act differently. And the main thing you say is drop the stories, find out what's left. And then and they'll they'll go from there, but you just have to give them that confidence, mm -hmm. uh, serenity. Mm -hmm. uh, that'll be okay, uh, and they'll do it. And they'll and once they do it, they'll be happy. <laughs> this was incredible. Thank you so much.
Well, it was fun. <laughs> we'll have to have a conversation again sometime. I'll come up with some more questions and. <laughs> yeah, fine with me. Again, if you know you you think about it, you have something for me. I mean, you're learning things that I'm not learning. I have my approach to it, and you have a completely different way of getting at the same kinds of ideas. Uh, so, send send your ideas in my way. I will. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, Thank you thanks. so much yeah, for taking the time to talk to me. me. Yeah. yeah. All right. right. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. At the end of my conversation, I was left asking myself the question. What even is meaning? Is living a life integrated into an ecosystem having meaning without the need to define it? Did we only start questing for something because we didn't realize we had it before? I'm very intrigued by Dr. Martin's concept of dropping the story. I wonder how much of this is possible, what it looks like, what stories might be more in line with immediate return psychology, and if any of this is possible living in a delayed return world. I'm also wondering how much studies could be done with his ID compensation theory. In what other ways are we compensating for this change? What other aspects of our culture have we labeled as quote-unquote human nature, but might very well be compensation from living out of an immediate return lifeway? I may never know the answer to these questions. It might be pointless to seek answers for them at this point in our history, where the majority of societies are delayed return, And I have a hard time imagining how humans raised in this particular way would ever find their way back to an immediate return life way, at least in my lifetime. But perhaps if we set the bar high, we'll get closer than if we never tried at all. To learn more about Dr. Leonard Martin and check out the links from some of the things we mentioned, make sure you go to my website, petermichaelbauer.com, and look in the podcast notes. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to see it continue, Consider becoming a financial supporter for as little as $5 a month. You can become a recurring supporter through my website, petermichaelbauer.com. Please share with like-minded friends and family, and make sure to leave a review on iTunes. To stay up to date on all my rewilding projects, make sure you follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you.